Welcome to this episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Dr Richard Dunley, the Naval History Lecturer at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In 1923, the British Committee of Imperial Defence warned that a small local navy with no scope for ambition and no variety of scene cannot, in the long run, secure the right type of officers or men or maintain a high standard of efficiency. This caution resonated with the Australian Commonwealth Naval Board and the Commonwealth Government. In the interwar period, Australian cruisers exchanged places with British cruisers on foreign stations for periods of up to six months. This significant fiscal cost, involving as it did long separation of sailors and families, was remarkable considering the shoestring budget the RAN was sustained upon during these years. To tell this story and its ongoing legacy, I am joined by Vice Admiral Peter Jones, who is a member of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales and author of Australia's Argonauts, which in part discusses some of these cruiser exchanges, and his Naval College classmate, Dr David Stevens, who is a veteran of both the Gulf and Iraq Wars. As a historian, David has written or edited several books on Australian naval history, including the prize-winning In All Respects Ready, a history of the RAN in the First World War. He has also written the most detailed account of the Cruiser Exchange Programme, and is now part of the Australian War Memorial team, writing the official history of operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you both for joining me. First off, let's set the scene. Peter, what was the state of the Royal Australian Navy in the years following the First World War? The, the Royal Australian Navy ended World War I with a, a proud record of achievement, most notably deterring the, the German Asiatic Squadron from threatening our shores, playing a pivotal role in Australia occupying German New Guinea and perhaps most notably sinking the German cruiser Emden. But after the war, much of the the fleet was either worn out or obsolescent, uh, overtaken by the technological advances in the four years of the war. And this included the flagship, uh, the Battlecruiser Australia, where even its uh, shells for its 12-inch guns were soon to be stopped being produced. The other major challenge were operating in the face of, as uh, um, Richard, you, you alluded to, repeated budget cuts and, uh, and also just trying to retain its manpower in the face of a desire by many to uh, return to civilian life. In 1920, the first naval member, Rear Admiral Sir Percy Grant, summed up the challenge when he said, it must therefore be evident to all thinking people that it is essential not to lose command of the sea and that every endeavour should be made to keep the Australian sea forces in such a condition as to, as to be able to retain command of the sea and to hamper and harass the enemy until Great Britain can come to the assistance of the Commonwealth and her sea forces. So uh, while there was no immediate threat to Australia, uh, there was a recognition that it takes years to develop naval capabilities and so it's essential to uh, keep that capability and maintain it. And, uh, and as Grant talked about, he talked about in such con- a condition. So that, that really was both equipment 
and also personnel and training. Excellent. Thank you. Um, David, what was the kind of typical peacetime tempo for Australian ships in, in this period? Well, as Peter has said, the um, Ariane was not in a great position in the early years after World War I. Um, the greatest fear was probably the fear of Japanese expan- military expansion. And yet financial rather than strategic circumstances continued to drive government decision making. And this meant that insufficient funds were available to keep the Navy effective and efficient, as Peter has said. Now, steaming and exercise time was therefore kept to a bare minimum. In terms of operational work, um, hydrographic surveying continued as one of the priorities. Uh, And the few ships in commission at that time did make the occasional foray into the near region. In 1921, for example, Melbourne uh, light cruiser made a visit to Numea at a time of considerable distrust in Anglo-French relations. In 1927, Sydney made similar calls on Dutch and Portuguese authorities in Timor. And of course, later that year, the light cruiser Adelaide made a show of force in the Solomon Islands after the killing of a British official. But these operational activities were relatively rare, and the squadron's main training cycle revolved around exercise periods in Queensland waters during the cooler months of the year, and then in southern waters during the summer months. And importantly for morale and visibility, domestic port visits often tied in with key events on the general social calendar, and this meant things such as the Hobart Regatta, the Melbourne Cup, and the Brisbane Agricultural Show. Excellent. So we're, we're getting a, a sense of, of what's going on uh, in the, the Royal Australian Navy in this period. Um, one of the things which is, is um, sort of often discussed and, and considered uh, when looking at the, the Royal Australian Navy in, in this sort of era is the idea that Royal uh, sort of Australian ships and Royal Navy ships and personnel were completely interchangeable. Can you talk a little bit more about this, Peter, and, and perhaps sort of put a bit of flesh onto the bones there? Yeah, sure. So there's probably three aspects to uh, to this answer. Um, first, as was seen in World War One, the war at sea was conducted on a global scale, and for the Allied effort to be effective, Allied navies had to be um, interoperable, um, and they had to coordinate their operations. Australian ships served where needed, and this is why our ships in World War I found themselves in the Caribbean, the Adriatic, the Mediterranean, the Sea of Azov, um, and Southeast Asia. The second point was that to be able to integrate with other navies, it helped greatly if the tactics and procedures, ammunition, spare parts, and so on were compatible. Uh, Final and by no means least uh, was that the Royal Australian Navy was a small navy. It had largely British-designed ships and it relied on the British Royal Navy for technical expertise, training and to even augment manpower. And this was particularly the case with um, senior officers, um, particularly commanding officers, admirals and so on, and, uh, and also senior sailors, particularly in highly specialist areas. Excellent. Thank you. Um, David, can you briefly then begin to outline um, what these cruiser exchanges involved? Yeah, well, as Peter has said, the uh, Navy was quite small. Uh, In fact, the decision was made to just concentrate on the cruiser force 
and they were the idea was to keep a minimum of three light cruisers in commission, which were originally was um, uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and Adelaide. Three of those, while the other one remained in reserve. Now, the idea of the cruiser exchange seems to have originally evolved from the Admiralty, and the aim from there was that they wanted to keep the REN, or at least the three light cruisers, um, sufficiently effective to allow them to contribute to Empire Defence. The first exchange proposal came in 1923, and at that stage sought the annual attachment of an Australian cruiser to either the British Atlantic or Mediterranean fleet for periods of up to six to 12 months. Now, the Australian Naval Board thought that this was a good idea, but only if a British vessel could be spared so as to sustain the minimum effective force strength on the Australia station. And in addition to ensuring the cruiser's maintenance was up to date, the main preparations required on the Australian side were maximising the number of Australians in the crew. Because at this stage, there were an awful lot of lone British officers and men in the Australian Navy. Now, by maximising the number of Australians in the crew that they were sending overseas, it meant that they could avoid sending British sailors back to their own home waters, but it also could act as a very useful recruitment tool for the RAN because it would show the local uh, people in Australia that they could actually get out and see the world. Excellent. Uh, that's it's really interesting to see how these things these things sort of play out. Um, David's already mentioned a little bit of this in in the previous answer, Peter, but can you? Um, add some some sort of uh, detail around the other connections and links that were existing uh, between the Royal Australian Navy and the Royal Navy at this time, including things like personnel training, uh, exchange and loan service. Yes, yeah, so so once again, there's a couple of villains to this. So, so just taking uh, officer training as an example, after a, an officer did initial training at the Naval College, um, as a junior, as a midshipman, um, went to sea. He then, as a uh, acting sub-lieutenant, would go to the Royal Navy for shore and sea training. Uh, specialist training in gunnery, signals, engineering, etc., would also be undertaken in the uh, UK. And to, to give a sense of this, uh, I, I went back to the 1930 um, Navy list, which lists all the officers in the in the Australian Navy, and I looked at the the Royal Navy one. Um, there were 76 uh, RN officers with attached to the Royal Navy, either conducting training or they were um, uh, on exchange in ships. And on the other side, there was uh, 36 officers from the Royal Navy serving in the RAN. Um, it was also common practice for, uh, as part of that exchange program, to, for officers to, um, to do a number of exchanges uh, in Royal Navy ships and indeed there was an um, accepted practice where officers would have to get a report in a Royal Navy ship in each rank. So one as a lieutenant, later in the, in the career as a lieutenant commander and then as a commander. And this was part of a notion or, or an awareness that um, being a small Navy that you needed to be assessed um, in, in a more object, objective way and um, are you up to standard? And, and so there was a concern that a small Navy could get too parochial and could promote people who really weren't of a sufficient standard. 
And so that was the uh, that became the norm. And so there were notable wartime cruiser and destroyer captains in the REN in World War Two. People like um, uh, Captain John Collins, who commanded uh, the uh, Sydney and the Mediterranean. Heck Waller, who commanded the Scrap Iron Fatilla. Both officers did a, a number of exchange. Um, uh, duties in Royal Navy ships and uh, in that went on into the Korean War. Um, uh, captain um, Brace Girdle and uh, the captains of all the uh, the ships had done exchange service with the um, with the Royal Navy and that even extended into, into Vietnam. Uh, Guy Griffiths who uh, commanded the first um, destroyer in Vietnam, he also had done extensive exchange service with the Royal Navy. Thank you. So we've we've now set the scene. Um, David, can you now go through a little bit about how the exchange program actually unfolds? Yes. Well, the uh, the details for a regular exchange program were settled at the 1923 Imperial Conference in London, which you quoted from at the beginning of this uh, episode. But at that same event, Australia's Prime Minister Stanley Bruce discovered new admiralty plans to send what they called a special service squadron centred on the battle cruisers Hood and Repulse on a flag-showing cruise around the Empire. Now, you've got to remember that the British Empire was global. Naval defence was essential to it. And this was a way for the, Brit- uh, for the British to show that they could actually reach out around the world by sending this off the special service squadron. Now, by then, the RAN had selected HMAS Adelaide, which was the youngest cruiser in the fleet, which had been commissioned just after the war, as the first Australian exchange vessel. The British offered her, as in Adelaide, a position in the Special Service Squadron for the return trip back to the UK. The downside was that the actual cost of sending the battle cruisers and their escorts around the world blew out the, um, the fuel budget for that year and it made it impossible for the Royal Navy to offer the RAN a replacement cruiser for this first first exchange. Now, despite this problem, the Australian Chief of Naval Staff at the time, Vice Admiral Everett, argued not just for the naval value value of the exchange, but the national strategic value. Um, He pointed out that flying the Australian flag on an Australian-built cruiser in other dominions would do much to encourage their own contribution to the Empire's naval defence and advertise Australian production and resource capabilities around the world. So again, it comes into Australia contributing to this global idea about, or Empire-wide idea of naval defence. Now, fortunately, Cabinet agreed with Everett's arguments and Adelaide joined the Special Service Squadron in early 1924 on its arrival in Australian waters and then sailed with the squadron to New Zealand, Fiji, Canada. Now, after passing through the Panama Canal, Adelaide went on to visit Jamaica and the Canadian East Coast before heading off to Portsmouth and spending three months with the home fleet. On the way home back to Australia, she spent a brief period with a cruiser squadron in the Mediterranean before returning to Australia via the Suez Canal in Singapore, which just happened to coincide with a major naval conference in Singapore about naval defence, or Empire Naval Defence. Now, Prime Minister Bruce declared the cruise a great success. Adelaide had operated both in the Atlantic and the, um, and the Mediterranean, uh, had achieved very high quality training, and the, the, as predicted, 
um, the trip had stimulated much greater interest in the Navy generally, not just in Australia, but around the Empire. Certainly when Adelaide visited Canada, it was pointed out that, you know, here's Hood, here's Repulse, and there's Adelaide flying the flag of Australia, showing how Australia contributes to Empire defence. We should maybe do the same in Canada. So this is perhaps one of the early examples of Australian naval diplomacy, imperial naval diplomacy, uh, certainly in this this period. Certainly, certainly. And, um, you know, so Prime Minister Bruce declared the cruise a great success um, and the Admiralty likewise voiced its approval, arguing that the Royal Navy and Dominion naval vessels in future needed to work constantly together if cooperation in wartime, which is again what this is all about, was going to be successful. Excellent. Really interesting to see how these things that sort of are unfolding in, in this, this period. Um, Peter, so following on from this very successful um, uh, sort of exchange f- uh, with Adelaide, um, what, what was the, the next cruiser was also the Australian uh, built HMAS Brisbane. Um, how did she fare? Yes, so Brisbane served um, with the China station this time uh, and for seven months in 1925 and she was replaced on the Australia station by the British cruiser Concord. So Brisbane uh, became part of the 5th Cruiser Squadron, which was uh, on the China station and she conducted visits into um, Malaya, Hong Kong, uh, China of course, uh, she was also the first Australian uh, warship to visit uh, Japan when she did a port visit on Yoka, at uh, Yokohama. Um, during her visit to Port Swetnam in Malaya, um, there was one notable incident where a swarm of bees descended on the ship and uh, Captain Sneed sent a signal to the, the senior British ship in port, which was the cruiser Hawkins, that Brisbane was temporarily out of service until the bees could be cleared from the ship. Uh, senior officer in, uh, in Hawkins, Captain Lake, um, was ent- entertaining several British expatriates and their wives at the time and thought it was funny to send a signal to Sneed asking, how many bees in Brisbane? Uh, to which uh, Sneed replied, how many whores in Hawkins? Uh, Br- Brisbane's deployment... Uh, um, had some controversy on a more serious note, and that was um, the Australian Labor Party uh, questioned whether she would be employed in protecting British colonial interests. Um, the Commonwealth Government could only really reply that Concord would um, be used to support Australian interests. As it turned out, later in, the, uh, in her deployment uh, on the China Station, Brisbane was sent to Hong Kong to help res- restore order um, during a general strike. Her ship's company assisted uh, local authorities to disperse large crowds and also her stokers were used to keep the coal-fired power station operating. On the 18th of July, while Brisbane was at Hong Kong, uh, there was a major la- landslide uh, which destroyed many homes and killed 73 people. And one of her um, senior sailors, Warren Officer Shipwright Robert Cargan, uh, was ashore at the time visiting friends and, and took part in the rescue operations and was later awarded a bronze life-saving medal for his conspicuous gallantry for saving life at imminent personal risk. Um, Brisbane returned to Australia in August and was decommissioned in October 1925. Um, as we talked about earlier, um, things were fairly tight and in fact she was down to conduct 
in fact, the, the next exchange, um, cruiser exchange, but she was actually in too poor a condition and was paid off. And so many of her crew transferred to the sister ship, HMAS Melbourne, which was then designated to do the next exchange. Thank you. So, um, David, uh, as we've just heard, Melbourne was... was um sort of earmarked for, for the next exchange going to um, spending time with the, the Mediterranean fleet. Uh, can you outline a little bit about her experience and particularly the benefits uh, accrued from, from this exchange? Yeah, well, um, Melbourne exchanged with the cruiser HMS Delhi. So we did actually get the repli- the, the exchange happening, not just a loan to, to the Royal Navy. And um, she was with the Mediterranean fleet from December 1925 to July 1926 and spent all her time in either the Mediterranean or the Atlantic. So it's this, uh, so again, it became a distant deployment as distinct from what you would call a regional deployment to the China Station. And obviously uh, Melbourne was actually was one of the original Australian light cruisers and so was not nearly as up to date as her consorts in the Mediterranean. Um, but having said that, she was treated um, identically as um, her, the sisters in her um, in her squadron. And when they, for example, they were doing an efficiency test, they'd make allowances for Melbourne not having necessarily the same update of equipment. Um, and even um, despite her fit, she still managed to become a come a credible a creditable third out of the four ships in her squadron. Now. We'd mentioned that uh, most of her crew had actually come from Brisbane, and that undoubtedly helped Melbourne in this, in that they'd actually had two deployments in a row, uh, most of them, and so they were clearly uh, well worked up and um, able to perform at the best of their abilities. Um, undoubtedly, the greatest value continued to be in combined operational training, particularly with something like the Mediterranean Fleet, which was very much a, a, a um, operational squadron. Um, on occasion, Melbourne acted as the squadron flagship, and in his farewell me- me- uh, message, the British Commander-in-Chief Mediterranean portrayed her uh, Melbourne's operational performance in the highest possible terms, um, saying that if the other ships in um, in the Australian fleet are like Melbourne, we'd be happy to welcome them at any time. Um, unfortunately, the record-keeping at this time isn't brilliant. Very seldom do they actually talk about what they did in an operational sense. And certainly the newspapers and the ships themselves mostly talk about sporting achievements. And um, Melbourne particularly uh, apparently did extremely well in the fleet supporting competitions. And this started a tradition that would be enthusiastically followed by subsequent Australian ships, uh, particularly in the, on the Mediterranean station. Excellent. Um, just one uh, follow-up. The rollover of the crew from Brisbane to Melbourne... Um, was that a very much a sort of a conscious, intentional decision, or is that driven by some of the the limitations on the the service in this time? It's very much. I mean, <laughs> a, a number of reasons. But when Melbourne, uh, Brisbane came back from China, she had so many defects that she couldn't be sent again, and it just made sense. If you there was limited time available, not huge um, number of people in the fleet. We'll transfer them across to Melbourne, send it off. Excellent. Um, Peter, then there's this gap. The next exchange is, is not until 1934. So why why was this? And what did the, the sort of the new program, the exchange program, look like? How was it different? 
Yes, so the gap in the program was largely due to the Great Depression and the even greater uh, fiscal strictures. Um, the 1929 exchange was, uh, was programmed for the, the new heavy cruiser Canberra and the uh, British heavy cruiser Shropshire, and that was cancelled at the last moment. It was like two weeks before it was started. And, um, and I guess one thing we, we haven't really touched on, from the British side coming out to the Australia station was actually extremely popular. Um, and uh, and the, uh, the, 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 the ties, family ties and so on, um, were extensive in, in that period and, and for many decades following. And so, uh, so that was uh, pretty sad news on board Shropshire when they learnt they weren't coming. So the next opportunity was then when the Duke of Gloucester uh, was to conduct a world tour. And that was... Um, and so in 1934, the, the Chief of Naval Staff, uh, who was uh, Admiral Hyde, he obtained British and Australian Government Agreement for the British cruiser Sussex um, to be swapped. And so Sussex was bringing out the Duke of Gloucester on, on this world tour. And so the plan was once Sussex got to Australia, then the, um, the cruiser um, HMAS Australia would then take the Duke of Gloucester for the remainder of his world tour and Sussex would remain in Australian waters. So that's what happened. Um, and so Australia returned to the, the Duke to UK via North America. Um, and uh, while in UK waters, Australia also took part in the 1935 Jubilee Naval Review. Um, and then after that, Australia then went to the Mediterranean um, following in Melbourne's footsteps and served in the Mediterranean for the for the best part of 12 months with the first cruiser squadron. Um, while there, the 1935 Abyssinian crisis led to Sussex coming from Australia to join um, Australia and the other cruisers in the first cruiser squadron. As well, the new uh, light cruiser, Sydney, was then on its delivery voyage from UK and uh, she joined the second cruiser squadron in the Mediterranean. And so for four months, the two Australian cruisers were in the Mediterranean. Um, just a, a bit of a, a, um, a comment here on, on personalities. So the, um, the XO of uh, executive officer or second in charge of Australia was Harold Farkham, who was a graduate of the, the first class to enter the Royal Australian Naval College. The executive officer of... Um, the Sydney was his classmate, John Collins. So you, so you see there that the first graduates are now executive officers of cruisers. Both captains were Royal Navy um, uh, captains on loan. And so they um, became integral parts of the Mediterranean fleet. The Commander-in-Chief Mediterranean at that time was Admiral Sir William Fisher and he was fondly known by sailors in the fleet as the Great Agrippa and uh, Fisher was famous for making unannounced visits to ships to inspect their material state and importantly just to talk to the crew and so on one occasion Sydney was tied up in Malta um, and the first thing that uh, John Collins who was uh, uh, on board, learnt was that the Admiral was um, 
between decks going around and talking to to the sailors and he eventually tracked down the great Agrippa and he was outside the sick bay where there was a long line of sailors and um, and so the Admiral was just uh, talking to them generally but also wanting to know where they contracted their venereal disease. Um, so Fisher was uh, relentlessly drove his fleet to maximum operational efficiency uh, and both Australian cruisers relished the demanding exercises and also as um, as David indicated, also the, the many sporting events that took place. The the, uh, the operational training gained greater impetus with the German occupation of the Rhineland in um, in March of that year. Um, just a, a, a little incident that's probably worth mentioning. Um, in a much appreciated uh, gesture, uh, Fisher detached Australia and Sydney to visit Gallipoli and to enable all Australians in the Mediterranean fleet to attend... Those RN officers on individual exchange on different Mediterranean fleet, sh- fleet ships were rounded up by the British destroyer Basilisk um, and um, and then they rendezvoused with the Australia and transferred for the pilgrimage. And then on the 30th of April 1936, the two cruisers anchored uh, off, the, um, off Gallipoli and they were met by a Turkish delegation and also the famous Lieutenant Colonel Cyril Hughes, who ran the Commonwealth War Graves. And, uh, and then in batches of 700 um, men, they were then taken ashore and over a period of four days, they, they toured the, um, the battlefields. And, but on the first day, there was a commemorative service run by the, the, the chaplains. And interestingly enough, there was a significant number of Turkish veterans um, from that campaign. And also one of the Sydney sailors uh, had served as a soldier um, at Gallipoli. And then at the end, um, as has become a custom after that uh, commemorative service, uh, the sailors left to to their own devices to wander the battlefield and also to try and find, uh, many tried to find the the graves of um, their relatives. Um, John Collins uh, reports on that... um, on that particular tour that he was surprised that many remnants such as water bottles, rifles, boots, cartridge cases and even some human bones were still strewn on the battlefield. And uh, he, John Collins' brother Reg had actually been at Gallipoli and he, he could start to uh, uh, put into context some of the stories that his brother had told him. And he later wrote, um, the cemeteries perfectly kept in lovely settings were a credit to the commission and the Turkish gardeners who tended them. In fact, it, it may seem a strange thing to say to me, uh, they were of great beauty, unlike any cemetery any, anywhere else I had seen. They were not depressing and I personally left with a feeling of contentment, satisfied that the Anzacs on Gallipoli rested in peace. So, um, Also during uh, Sydney's Mediterranean stint, she twice had an outbreak of mumps and in the second outbreak her captain uh, as I said a, a British officer Captain J.U.P. Fitzgerald um, was allowed to take Sydney to Cyprus for quarantine and he knew of a perfect bay in the southeast coast with a freshwater stream running into the sea and after a bit of difficulty they finally relocated the bay and they anchored and they put the sailors ashore for recuperation for um, 
until their, their quarantine came to an end. So not long after that second quarantine, Sydney and Australia detached from the Mediterranean fleet and after a fairly rough passage, both cruisers arrived in Fremantle on the 2nd of August 1936 and over 10,000 people lined um, the, the wharves to, to greet the two ships and Australia had been away for 615 days from Australia. Wow, long deployment. Um, unknown at the time, uh, but sort of when Australia and Sydney arrive in, in Australian waters, uh, this was the, the last of the, the cruiser exchange programs. Um, David, can you talk us through a little bit about the, the tangible benefits of these um, two ship service in, in the Mediterranean, sort of looking forward, obviously, as, as we can see now, into the, the coming war? Yeah, well, as Peter has mentioned, um, the two cruisers had really reached a high standard of operational performance. Um, both ships were treated exactly as if they were Royal Naval vessels and performed as if they were um, at the highest, uh, at their peak of effectiveness. So the value of the exchange scheme uh, for Australia and for the Royal Navy had obviously been repeated several times over by now. Um, unfortunately, the, um, it was the last. Now, why that is the case isn't particularly clear. I suspect it was just because both countries became too busy concentrating on what was about to happen with, the, um, in, uh, with Germany and, and Italy and uh, didn't have the opportunity. But there was also some political problems as well in that the going back to um, Brisbane and China, where there had been the the Australian concern that the ship would be used in um, in operations that weren't in Australia's national interest, um, and there was a little, there were some concerns going on um, that, particularly um, in the United Kingdom, for example, where people were pointing out, well, you know, this exchange system is great value, but can we really rely on the Australians when the time comes? Because their politicians might decide that it's not in uh, their interest. So. Empire defence is great to a point, but each individual dominion has its own political problems. And so certainly in the war plans, as we move towards 1939, the Admiralty had actually removed the Australian ships from operating with um, a, a UK force, but rather were leaving them in, intended to leave them in Australia to operate um, purely on local defence um, in the in the region, so that may also have had something to do with it. But I suspect it was more or less uh, more because of um, the, the exchange program had finished, more because there was just not enough time before the war began in September 1939 with Germany. Now, having said that, um, the undoubtedly those exchanges had brought important long-term benefits and Peter has gone through some of these. Certainly it was more on the human side than the um, uh, material side of the ledger. And as Peter has mentioned, famous Australian wartime cruiser captains such as Harold Fargham and John Collins had both had that very um, important experience uh, of operating in the Mediterranean in a close proximity, integrated perfectly into to, um, uh, Royal Naval um, formations. So that would have been vital um, for broadening and strengthening the connections they had with their Royal Navy counterparts, as did the whole exchange pro program, of course. Um, uh, and that would mean that when war came, they could hit the ground running. 
there certainly wasn't that, you know, they, it wasn't an unfamiliar thing. They could go straight in, we know the people, we know the ships, we know how it works, doctrine, everything. And the same for junior sailors throughout the ship. The junior sailors who were there during those exchange programs would then become the backbone of the senior sailors during the wartime period, the ones who could train up the hostilities-only personnel, um, know what was going on, tell people what to expect, talk to them about their sea stories, tell them, you know, this is, what you, this, is this port, this is what happens there, this is how we operate, all those sort of aspects. So there were certainly ter- um, tangible benefits. Um, and, of course, there was that general continual benchmarking of Australia's own capabilities and training systems with the Royal Naval System. So all of those things meant that when war, war broke out in September '39, the Australian Navy was capable of operating immediately as required. So all of these kind of um, real sort of important benefits but are quite difficult to quantify and, and put a, uh, any kind of figure on or, or, or really pull out in individual actions or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, so, Peter... This program seemed to be such a success. So coming out of, of the Second World War, uh, were there any attempts to try and sort of resurrect something similar? Um, not as a dedicated exchange program. Um, and I think that was partly due to a couple of things. One was, um, I think, the cost and extended separation from families um, with little hope of... Um, of reunion was um, was probably less acceptable then in the post-war period, um, but the desire to operate and and um, and have a benchmark of operational standards was still there, but there was also some um, uh, operational imperatives. And so, in the fifties and sixties, uh, typically the Australian Navy would have two ships on rotation in the British Far East Fleet. Um, and so they would go up for six months, um, and be and that was part of what was called the Far East Strategic Reserve, and there was a series of um, uh, exercises both um, with the Far East Fleet, but also with the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation, also with the um, uh, Americans separately. So they uh, they certainly achieved that outcome of um, making sure that. The, um, the Australian Navy wasn't a, a small parochial force, that they were operating in bigger fleets at times. So they had that filter, that um, rotation of two ships every six months um, into the, uh, the British Far East fleet. Um, then as that uh, petered out really after the Vietnam War, there was um, other opportunities which were sort of... Um, Really, on the basis of on opportunity basis, so the the couple I would cite would be um, in 1976, Hobart did a circumnavigation that was to tie in with an anniversary in the United States. Uh, the aircraft carrier Melbourne and Brisbane um, went to the Queen's Silver Jubilee review in 1977 in UK. Um, they also took part in NATO exercises there and training with the um, Royal Navy. Sydney in 1990, Anzac in 2005 and Sydney and Ballarat in 2009 all did circumnavigations um, and s- some of those ships did um, training at uh, with the, 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 the British at Portland so they went through a, an evaluation and 
uh, like any other Royal Navy ship would do when they're coming out of a, a refit or a maintenance period. And that was just used to benchmark um, what our standards were. Um, and uh, in addition to that, there's that continuation of individual exchange service um, and uh, typically um, in any numbers it's with the US Navy, the, the Royal Navy, New Zealand and the Canadian Navy. So there's still, to this day, there's uh, officers and, and, um, and sailors on exchange with those navies, both ashore and at sea. And finally, there's uh, what's called Exercise Long Look, which is a three-service Army, Navy, Air Force exchange, which is for a couple of months, and that's between um, uh, the Armed Forces of Australia, UK and New Zealand. And once again, it's that opportunity for just a short amount of time to do an exchange and, and broaden your professional horizons. And presumably there's been a, a growth in, in sort of wider naval exercises and things like that in this period, which also build on these kind of interoperability uh, type capabilities. Yes, and uh, and that's a good point actually because uh, the the range of exercises is is now and it has been for, for a couple of decades, not just with... Uh, these navies that we've talked about. It's also with Southeast Asian navies, it's with you know navies of Japan, India and so on. So there's a, the, the navies today operate with a, a wide range of different navies. Obviously the exercises are at different levels of complexity but it's all about that idea that, um, that David's talked about that in, in periods of conflict that you have a, a basis upon which you can operate. Thank you. Finally, can I ask uh, both of you for your sort of final summing up uh, thoughts on the, the Cruiser Exchange Programme? I'm going to start with you, David, and then go on to, to Peter. Yeah, well, I think we, it's important to remember that the Cruiser Exchange policy was a product of its time. Um, it reflected the difficult financial circumstances the RAN was in between the wars and the need to actually get out beyond the Australia station to go somewhere else and work with other navies. And that said, of course, many of the same principles, as, as Peter has mentioned again, um, still apply today. Um, although today we take, talk about interoperability rather than interchangeability. Um, and of course, we, notwithstanding the fact we operate with lots of other navies, we tend to look at that interoperability primarily based on the US Navy. Now, having said that, I have one little story from um, the first Gulf War which just shows the importance of an exchange program and HMAS Brisbane uh, when she arrived in the Gulf had um, some problems with Link 11 with the Royal Navy destroyer that happened to be on the st on station and the it just happened that the um, Brisbane's direction officer had just come out of a um, exchange program with the Royal Navy in that same destroyer. So he was familiar with the, the capabilities, the systems, the people on the ship we were operating with. Now, he was able to contact um, the British destroyer, say, have you considered doing tweak, tweaking this knob or however they did it? And everything came back to life. And that was the other, if we hadn't had that exchange, if we hadn't had that personal knowledge of what was on board, it could have been much longer before we could actually be able to uh, have our data link working between the two ships. So that's just one example. Uh, and as uh, Peter has said, we certainly continue to benchmark our capabilities and training and doctrine, of course, uh, against all our allied navies. 
But uh, the other aspect that we haven't covered yet just yet that I'd like to finish up on is that it's not unheard of for foreign naval vessels to come out to Australia to boost our capabilities um, uh, when we need them, particularly um, on the logistics side. The Royal New Zealand Navy, for example, has quite often provided their replenishment ship to support us when we have not had the capabilities available. And then in 2013, the Spanish replenishment ship Cantabria spent most of the year operating in our own waters because our own replenishment ship was undergoing maintenance. So these things still happen. And perhaps in the future, maybe a UK or a, a US Navy nuclear submarine might be out here for some reason. Thank you. Uh, Peter? Um, I think the, the Cruiser ex Exchange showed uh, great self-awareness that as an institution that the maintenance of operational effectiveness in a small navy is a challenge and standards can slip. Um, and while there, there is considerable investment um, that was used to actually make that happen, to make the Cruiser Exchange happen, uh, I think it really showed that uh, it was money really well spent. Um, and that in it, and it's a lesson, I guess, going forward that you do have to invest um, resources to maintain your operational capabilities. Um, I think also it, it highlights a less appreciated aspect of how the Royal Navy uh, continued to assist the Royal Australian Navy to maintain itself as a first-rate naval service. Thank you. Sadly, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Peter Jones and David Stephens. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the university's creative media unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you liked this episode, please let other people know about the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.